This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And this week on the program, we'll be discussing the politics at university campuses, particularly the case of Joel Covell, who was a teacher at Bard University in New York. And I'll be speaking with Gillian McEachern of Toronto and Forest Ethics. She's going to talk to us a little bit about the mass demonstration in Washington that greeted Canadian Environmental Minister Jim Prentice regarding Canada's tar sands. Also, a discussion with investigative journalist Eve Engler from Montreal. It uh, is the fifth anniversary of the coup that happened in Haiti, taking out the government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and he will discuss Canada's role in this overthrow. We'll also have our alert headlines. Around the left in seven days. And Music is the Weapon, featuring André Clément. And now for the alert headlines for the week of March 5th, 2009. A new report claims the federal government is planning to make changes to the governance structure of First Nations without adequate consultation with Aboriginal groups. The government is apparently trying to revive parts of the First Nations Governance Act, mooted by the Liberals in 2002, but abandoned because of controversy it generated amongst First Nations. Hundreds of pages of classified documents obtained by the Globe and Mail, including a draft memorandum to Cabinet and Indian Affairs notes marked secret and protected, show that the government is moving ahead in these areas with far less consultation than what Native leaders have demanded. The National Union of Public and General Employees has criticized the federal government's bill which would no longer make pay equity a matter of human rights in the federal civil service. NUPGE has stated that pay equity is a fundamental human right that must not be subjected to unreasonable bargaining pressures, especially when the federal government holds the balance of power. By forcing them to file complaints as individuals, the bill will effectively eliminate women's ability to pursue pay equity complaints. CanWest Global's communications got a reprieve when its bankers agreed to a two-week extension of the February 27th deadline to work out a financial plan. CanWest is carrying a $3.7 billion debt and reported a $32.6 million loss for the quarter that ended on November 30, 2008. Earlier, its bankers had reduced the line of credit. It has been speculated that the Asper family could lose control of CanWest if the financial picture worsens and the company has to seek protection from its creditors. Citizenship and Immigration Minister Jason Kenney has been accused of resorting to wedge politics to advance the cause of his political party. Kenney seized upon the intemperate words of the head of the Canadian Arab Federation to threaten a funding cut to the Federation. Block MP Bryson said that Kenney was pouring oil on the fire of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Canadian Arab Federation said cutting off funding would constitute the collective punishment of innocents who received its services, while groups like B'nai B'rath applauded the move. Veteran Toronto Star columnist Haroon Siddiqui writes that cabinet ministers, especially ministers of multiculturalism, should try to stay above the fray. After seven years of Canadian troops fighting and dying in Afghanistan, 
Prime Minister Harper has conceded that defeating the Taliban can't be done. In an interview with CNN, Harper said that despite sending thousands of soldiers to Afghanistan and suffering more than 100 troop deaths, the success has been modest and any gains made could be lost. We're not going to win this war just by staying, he added. But Mr. Harper didn't rule out sending more troops or extending the Canadian combat commitment beyond the current 2011 deadline. Asked if he would reject a request from Barack Obama for a mission extension or more troops, Mr. Harper ducked the question. Both Israel and Hamas used weapons supplied from abroad to carry out attacks on civilians, Amnesty International said. It released fresh evidence on the munitions used during the three-week conflict in Gaza and called on the UN to impose a comprehensive arms embargo. As the major supplier of weapons to Israel, the USA has a particular obligation to stop any supply that contributes to gross violations of the laws of war and of human rights. Under a 10-year agreement extending to 2017, the USA is due to provide $30 billion in military aid to Israel, a 25% increase compared to the period preceding the Bush administration. International donors have pledged over $4 billion to help rebuild Gaza after Israel's brutal 22-day war on the territory. The donations, agreed at a conference in Egypt, are to be channeled through the Palestinian Authority and not Hamas, Gaza's governing party. If none of the donations go to Hamas, it remains unclear how the planned reconstruction of Gaza will be undertaken. Israel has said it will refuse to approve projects that could benefit Hamas. The UN Secretary General told donors that the border crossings into Gaza must be reopened to allow aid into the devastated territory. He said that the situation at the border crossings is intolerable. Aid workers do not have access and essential commodities cannot get in. The United States has decided to boycott an upcoming UN conference on racism unless its final document is changed to drop all references to Israel. The Conference Against Racism, to be held in Geneva in April, is a follow-up to the conference held in the South African town of Durban in 2001. Israel and Canada have already announced they will boycott the conference, which is known as Durban II. The U.S. and Israeli delegations walked out of the 2001 meeting in protest against the resolution which likened Zionism to racism. Hamid Karzai, Afghanistan's president, is reported to have called for presidential elections to be held in April, which is four months earlier than planned. Karzai's move is contrary to the wishes of the United States and comes amid a deterioration in relations between Washington and Kabul. The U.S. Special Envoy, Richard Holbrook, during his recent visit to Afghanistan, met several personalities who are seen as potential replacements for Karzai. This has increased speculation that the Americans are looking at ways to dump him. Furthermore, Barack Obama has not bothered to contact Karzai since his inauguration. A Vancouver lawyer says she plans to lay criminal charges against former President George W. Bush when he visits Calgary on March 17th. Gail Davidson, co-founder of Lawyers Against the War, is going to attempt to initiate a private prosecution against Bush for torture. In a letter to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and four federal cabinet ministers, the group requested that Bush be denied entry into Canada in accordance with the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. The act bars senior members of a government that has committed offences listed in the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act from entering the country. An article recently published by a legal scholar has itemized 267 war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Bush. Britain may have broken international law on torture.
Professor Manfred Noack, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has alerted British ministers to a range of concerns, including claims that British Secret Service officers were complicit in the maltreatment of suspects. The Austrian law professor warned that Britain has breached the UN Convention on Torture, and he revealed that he was organizing a fact-finding mission to Pakistan, whose security services allegedly tortured terror suspects before the captives were questioned by British authorities. U.S. government lawyers have disclosed that the CIA destroyed 92 videotapes depicting harsh interrogation and confinement of so-called high-value al-Qaeda suspects. The acknowledgement results from a civil lawsuit filed in New York by the American Civil Liberties Union, which sought details of the interrogation programs that followed the September 11, 2001 attacks. At issue are recordings that chronicle the interrogation of two senior al-Qaeda members while they underwent a simulated drowning practice known as waterboarding. American Civil Liberties Union attorney said the CIA should be held in contempt of court for withholding the information for so long. And those were the alert headlines. And now around the left in seven days for March 5th, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. The 5th Annual Israeli Apartheid Week is from March 1st to the 8th. Started in Toronto in 2005, Israeli Apartheid Week is now an important global event of Palestinian solidarity. Well-known civil rights activist Vincent Harding speaks at the University of Winnipeg on Thursday, March 5th from 7 to 9 p.m. Harding, who is also a historian and the biographer of Martin Luther King, speaks on the progress of civil rights over the last five decades in a lecture called Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama's Other Ancestors. Admission is free. International Women's Day is on Sunday, March the 7th. In Toronto, the theme of the celebration is Women Lead the Fight, Good Jobs and Dignity for All. The rally begins at 11 a.m. and the fair starts at 1.30 p.m. West Coast Environmental Law presents a public lecture by author and scientist Ricky Ott on Friday, March 7th at the Vancouver Aquarium Theatre. Ott's latest book, not one drop, is about the Exxon Valdez spill, oil spill in Alaska and its ongoing effects on the environment and coastal communities. The lecture begins at 7 p.m. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and as Alert has broadcast in recent weeks, there has been a concentrated campaign on Ontario University campuses to clamp down on student groups opposed to Israel's apartheid policies and its, a massive, its massive attack on Gaza. Similar efforts, efforts are also occurring in the USA. The firing of well-known scholar and activist Joel Covell is the latest in a series of administration attempts to remove critical discussion of Israel from their campuses. Joel Covell is the author of Overcoming Zionism. A few weeks ago, he was fired from his teaching post at Bard College in New York. We have him on the phone from Manhattan. Good evening, Joel, and welcome to Alert. I'm very happy to be talking to Winnipeg. Well, I understand that... Uh, 
events occurred over over a number of years, but briefly take us through yeah, what led up to you. I want to just get the highlights. First of all, because uh, we'll go into the, you know, the deeper part soon, but uh, not technically fired. Yeah, re- uh, Refuse to renew your contract, which will not be renewed. But so you won't be teaching there. I'm still on pay- payroll, although on leave. Um, and uh, I've been at this school, which is called Bard College, for 21 years, and uh, uh, it's ironic and pathetic. This is a school that has a very pronounced left-wing uh, reputation. It was voted the second most liberal school in the United States by the Princeton Review and so on. And uh, I was hired as actually a left-wing political professor uh, and uh, enjoyed teaching there for about 13 years. And uh, then my attentions uh, switched to the subject of Israel and Zionism because as a citizen of the world and as a Jewish American, uh, I felt uh, you know, a great deal of responsibility and moral concern there. And so I uh, began writing um, articles sharply critical of Israel, in fact, uh, critical to the degree of, of comparing it to the Republic of South Africa and its apartheid phase and, and, and insisting that we treat it the same way, namely take up the question of whether it should be replaced by a genuinely democratic society. And that's the, that's the key issue, I believe, um, the uh, campus in which I teach has a president and several people in the administration who are deeply involved with Israel. It is the case throughout broad swaths of both the United States and indeed Canada. As you pointed out, these things are happening in Canada, and, and they happen all over the uh, English-speaking world and well, throughout Europe as well. It's a really quite an extraordinary phenomenon, and require a lot more time than we have to go over it in any detail, but our school where I teach Bard is a small school, but was quite prominent in this world, and uh, as soon as I got involved in criticizing the state of Israel and talking in fundamental terms about its need for transformation, I started getting into trouble. I had an endowed chair that was taken away from me. Uh, I was asked to resign. My contract went from full-time to half-time. I will say, by that time, I was actually uh, uh, welcoming that because uh, I found it very burdensome teaching there, and I wanted more time to do the things that I felt would be more politically and intellectually relevant. Um, so it's a mutual process of me pulling away and, uh, and uh, them pushing me away. Um, I was not a tenured professor as such, because I transferred over from another profession. I was a, a physician before I became an academic uh, at Bard. So I, I don't have a regular ten- tenure appointment, so I had these contracts. And uh, To make a long story short, I'll introduce a couple more features. The contracts is now not being renewed. And, uh, of course, they're using the very real uh, issue of, of uh, financial uh, cutbacks and the like and pressures to justify my not being renewed. However, as is so often the case, there's much more to it than that, and what they're doing is using this real enough pretext as a means of, in my view, getting rid of a voice that was asking too many really serious questions about Israel on a campus whose leadership was very, very, very high in the uh, you know, pantheon of, uh, of supporters of, of the state of Israel. 
Well, tell us what those questions were that you believe led to your not being brought back to teach at Bard College, please. Yeah, well, I mean, the particular question is this, that uh, I, I believe that it's not enough to just criticize the excesses of the state of Israel, that one, that one must criticize its very foundations, because the foundations are what generates the excesses and the human rights violations. And um, uh, I published a book called Overcoming Zionism, as you mentioned, and, and uh, that book was actually banned in the, uh, in the United States because it was so controversial. And the school at which I teach uh, did nothing to support me, even though it's a bastion of free speech. So that made me feel very uh, alienated from them. And, and um, uh, nonetheless, I didn't stop uh, making my, my criticism, and I published additional work. And the, the fundamental point is that I believe that one doesn't just solve this problem by criticizing the state of Israel, one criticizes Zionism. And Zionism is the ideology of the state of Israel, which is to say that the destiny of the Jewish people is to have their own state in, you know, historic Palestine. And this is a very bad idea. It's one that has lead, will lead and has led to endless war and ethnic cleansing and racism and the like. And, and it's making uh, things worse and worse. And the this all got completely out of hand, of course, with the uh, bombing of Gaza around the turn of the year. And I think that that uh, triggered in me a uh, <clears throat> really profound reaction. I mean, I, I, I would have been upset anyhow, but I mean, I, I, you know, that's over the top, even by standards of Israeli brutality. And in addition, what really bothered me was that the college, which I teach, Bard, uh, no response at all. I mean, there's absolutely zero. It's one of the very few institutions of higher learning where there was just complete apathy and passivity, and that showed to me that this was a place where, so to speak, the repression of dialogue on the question of Israel and Zionism had sunk so deeply into an intimidated, uh, manipulated faculty that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't speak out against injustices that were upsetting the entire world in, in you know, every which way, including large numbers of Jewish people who had never criticized Israel before. So I think that this precipitated the break. Um, and uh, uh, Although, I mean, I think they've been looking forward to extrude me for a long time. They knew my contract would be up at June 30th, and this would be the opportunity to simply say, well, he's done his thing, and we don't need him anymore. But I, I believe it was prejudicial, and... and uh, for two reasons. One is the matter by which they evaluated me was, was totally contrary to the spirit and the letter of their own uh, bylaws, and that they had people evaluating me who had uh, strong conflicts of interest and should have definitely recused themselves. And also because uh, I wanted an amicable resolution of this, sit down with them, but they didn't want to sit down with me. They just wanted to send me a, a letter which basically was telling me I'm fired and, and uh, you know, Thank you for your service to the school. You know, leave your badge at the door, kind of thing. You know, without any dialogue, and I, I, I felt that that was intolerable. So, I went public with it, and it's, it's produced a great deal of turmoil and consternation. It's unfortunate because, uh, as much as I, I have deep criticisms of the school, I also have friends there and, and fond memories. But to me, uh, I, I, I take a very, very stern view of this matter. I think that the question. State of Israel and what's going on 
in the Middle East is one of the most fundamental in the world. It's not just uh, idle talk. We're talking now about something around which a great deal turns in our civilization. We're talking about the last outpost, you might say, of Western colonialism. And uh, it needs to be addressed, especially when you have this tremendous degree of uh, complicity on the part of the Western powers, and overwhelmingly so on the part of the United States. I mean, the U.S. gives Israel its impunity through these institutions which suppress debate. And so if Israel is committing super uh, human rights violations like white phosphorus and the like, uh, you know, those institutions which give it the impunity to do so have to be held up in the dock. I, I believe that the silence leads to atrocity. And this, uh, you know, is maybe make me an uncomfortable uh, voice there, but I can't be, I, I can't be silent. Let's put it that way. Well, you, uh, I saw a reference to uh, the banning of your book. Yeah. And uh, can you tell us what the status is now of uh, overcoming Zionism? Well, it was banned uh, in, the, in, in the summer of 2007. It, it was released earlier that year. And... Uh, attracted the attention of the Zionist Thought Police, who put pressure on its distributor, the University of Michigan Press, because it was published in Britain by Pluto Press, and, uh, and also in Canada by Between the Lines in Toronto. It was never banned in Canada. There was always uh, access to it in Canada, and that uh, along fine there. But in the U.S., the giant U.S. market, it had to go through University of Michigan Press, and this, this was subjected to a great deal of heat by these... Uh, Zionist watchdogs, and uh, who basically caused the director of the press to uh, fold up and, and just, you know, panic or do whatever he did, and he banned the book, and he stopped the book from being circulated, which is really, uh, you know, a fairly unusual event <laughs> in our so-called advanced society, and, and it provoked a lot of uh, outrage, and I started organizing. We have a group called Committee on Open Discussion of Zionism, and your listeners can look this up at the CODZ, CODZ.org, where both the details of my case and also some of the background is, uh, is laid out. And uh, in addition, you know, we take taking on other cases. I just heard today of a woman at the University of Ithaca, which is near Cornell in New York State, which she's been denied tenure. On these grounds, you want to investigate that. It goes on all over the place. There's, of course, the Finkelstein case, which is fairly well-known, but also the case of Joseph Massad at Columbia. And, and there's many, many more. And it's time for people throughout the, well, certainly the English-speaking or North American world to, to join and unite in, 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 you know, in, in taking on these enemies of, of uh, freedom and these people who perpetuating unjust and uh, murderous regimes. I, and I, I think, you know, that the reason this is heating up is, is because actually the tide is turning against the Zionists. And this is very important to realize that, that the state of Israel is now in serious uh, trouble, as mighty as it is, you know, because it, the, the two-state solution that it has been, you know, trumpeting as a way of basically buying time is, collapsing and nobody believes in it anymore and then you have so you have uh, the option either to continue the status quo or to look towards a one-state solution which is to say the south african you know, alternative which can be achieved or at least directed towards by boycott divestment and sanctions campaigns and we know those are taking place across particularly the english-speaking world it's not really very prominent elsewhere but 
the English-speaking world is enough. I mean, if, if in the U- U.S. and Canada and Britain uh, we start heavy-duty boycotts, uh, it's going to be very serious trouble for the state of Israel. The first American, I'm sorry, first United States uh, uni- uh, University, Hampshire College uh, in Massachusetts, um, has, uh, under pressure from its activist students and faculty, uh, started divestment procedures against Israel, which, uh, you know, against companies that do business with Israel, like Caterpillar, uh, you know, the bulldozer company uh, that knocks, makes these bulldozers the U.S. gives Israel to knock down houses, or uh, Motorola, which is building uh, communications networks in the occupied territories so that the IDF can uh, repress the, the Palestinian people. And, and so, but this is a major breakthrough. And also, you know, students are beginning to occupy their campuses. Uh, there's a movement breaking out of Columbia now. There was one at NYU. So lots is happening. And because it's happening so much, the, the, the battle is being drawn. And, and uh, the Zionist power structure does not give up. It's not going to roll over. It's, it, it's fighting for its life. We're going to have to leave it there. Joel Covell, thank right. you very much for your, sure. uh, your views today. And uh, we will certainly watch your next move. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Eve Engler. February 28th was the fifth anniversary of the coup that brought down the democratically elected government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide in Haiti. Yves Engler is an investigative journalist who has written many articles about this event. His newest book is the forthcoming The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy. Welcome to Alert, Yves Engler. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Now, can you take us through the events of February 29th, 2004, the coup against the government of Jean-Bertrand Aristide in Haiti? Yeah, well, basically, um, Canadian uh, troops were at the airport um, when uh, U.S. Marines, uh, uh, in the words of Aristide, kidnapped him and forced him on a, a plane uh, and uh, dumped him in the in the Central African Republic. So Canadian soldiers, Joint Task Force Two, Canadian Special Forces uh, troops were in Haiti uh, before the coup. Uh, the official story was that they were protecting. Um, uh, the embassy, they added, they had some reinforcements to protect the embassy, uh, but, but it has come out that uh, there was actually Canadian forces that were providing security at the airport uh, that the uh, elected president, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, says he was uh, forced out of the country, kidnapped by, uh, by American forces. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about Jean-Bertrand Aristide and why these countries, the U.S., Canada, and France, joined forces with rebels to remove him from the island. Yeah, well, I think Aristide, what's important, there's been a lot of demonization of Aristide, um, uh, but I think what's important uh, to note about Aristide is, is that he's a symbol uh, of the democratic movement um, in Haiti, uh, as people may know, who know a little bit of Haitian history, uh, Haiti was under a brutal dictatorship um, until 1986. The baby uh, Papadoc and baby Doc uh, uh, Duvalier dictatorship that was uh, very harsh and uh, exclusionary um, uh, dictatorship. And starting in the late 80s, there was this popular movement that had got rid of um, the Duvalier dictatorship, and then there was a series of other. Um, 
uh, pro-military governments that were in five different governments in a four-year span. And then they had finally had first uh, free and fair election in, in 1990. And Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was a, uh, a priest, um, a liberation theology priest, uh, for the uh, the preferential option for the poor, uh, which is the basic theme of liberation theology. Um, and uh, uh, Aristide won those elections overwhelmingly, 67% of the vote, 14% went to his the runner-up candidate. Um, these were, this was a runner-up candidate supported by the American government. Uh, millions and millions of dollars put into the campaign of, uh, of Aristide's runner-up. Nine months after Aristide took office uh, in September of 1991, he was uh, ousted in a military coup with quiet U.S. support. Uh, anyways, there's lots of details to, to bring us up to uh, uh, 2001 when Aristide was re-elected uh, again. But the basic uh, point is that Aristide uh, is a symbol of the majority poor in Haiti, that they have a right um, to, uh, to participate in, in political life. And just uh, on Saturday, on the 50th anniversary, Thousands, as many as ten thousand people, again demonstrated against the coup, demanding the return of Aristide, who's still in, in exile in South Africa. And the political party of Aristide—that is the Labalas party. Yeah, Sami Labalas. Can you tell us about the short-term aftermath of the coup? What happened in the days following, in in March of two thousand and four? Yeah, well, first of all, it's important to to point out that. Well, there's a lot of demonization of Aristide, the uh, the individual. It wasn't just Aristide that was overthrown. There was actually thousands of elected officials, uh, mayors, uh, parliamentarians, uh, who all uh, were ousted in this in this coup d'état process. Uh, we don't discuss that, but uh, we don't discuss that too much in the mainstream media. But but uh, um, this was not just the uh, you know an individual who was taken out, but it was the whole uh, governmental um, apparatus. Even it was. Uh, to the point where any any uh, project that was associated with the elected government was often ransacked, destroyed. So you had this cooperative bus um, uh, uh, system called Transport Plus that was completely destroyed in the aftermath of the coup. You have uh, the uh, medical school that was opened by the Aristide government, uh, occupied by uh, U.S. military uh, as their base. Uh, that continued until about uh, eight months ago, uh, where UN troops continued to occupy medical school and forced all the uh, the medical students um, to to go find uh, uh, to continue their studies in Cuba. Um, you had massive, massive increase in human rights violations. Anybody, political officials, activists, uh, or just people in neighborhoods in the poor neighborhoods that were identified as 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 bastions of support for Aristide um, had. Massive increase in human rights violations. Uh, the the uh, death squad, return of the death squads, the former military that Aristide government had disbanded, uh, went on, really went on a rampage. Uh, container there was a in in Capaïcien, the second city, second biggest city of the country. There was uh, a couple dozen people put into a container and dumped into the ocean. Uh, um, according to the Lancet Medical Journal, the British Medical Journal, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, uh, in the 22 months after the coup. Uh, in Port-au-Prince alone, which is about a quarter of the a quarter of the country's population, there were 8,000 people killed. Uh, nearly nearly half of those 4,000 were by political actors uh, were identified as by political actors um, uh, opposed to the Aristide government. 
the Canadian-trained uh, Haitian police, uh, the former military, uh, the anti-Aristide gangs. Um, so you really had a horrible deterioration of the small steps uh, that had been made in terms of expanding political uh, and political rights in Haiti over the past uh, uh, 10 years before the coup. Um, Eve Engler, under the liberal government that was in power at the time, why did Canada support this coup? Uh, this violence is unimaginable. Well, I think um, the Canadian government supported them. There's a whole host of reasons. You had some direct corporate interests that I think um, uh, certainly prodded the Canadian government to, to participate in the coup. Uh, Gildan Activewear, the largest blanket blank T-shirt maker in the world, based here in Montreal, um, is the second biggest employer in Haiti after the state. Um, uh, and they weren't happy with the fact that the Aristide government increased the minimum wage from 36 good to 70 good, just over a dollar Canadian, um, in 2003, in February 2003. So they were with very direct corporate interests. This, this, this T-shirt maker, their major subcontractor, they had some of their own factories in Haiti, but largely what they did is subcontracted their work to Andy Ped. Andy Ped being the leader of the domestic opposition uh, to Haiti, a large major industrialist in Haiti um, of of uh, Syrian descent. So in the in the Haitian context, essentially a, a white guy who was in charge of the the, uh, the the group of 184, which is a leading domestic political opposition funded by the International Republican Institute. So you had some corporate interests in terms of the guild, and you had some mining companies, specifically Saint Jean Vieve, another Montreal-based company that was uh, not happy with the Aristide government going all the way back to 1996. Um, and uh, they actually, there's an article in the, New York, or in the Toronto Star about a year and a half ago uh, saying that uh, Saint-Geneviève, since the coup has, has uh, restarted their exploration, and uh, uh, now that the uh, Aristide government is gone, that they've restarted their exploration. Um, so there's some, some specific corporate interests, I think, explain part of it. Uh, I think you have a longer-term history of Canadian uh, imperialism, really, in the in the Caribbean, that goes back at least a hundred years, where Canadian banks have been uh, dominated, uh, particularly the English Caribbean, but also Haiti and Dominican Republic and and, and Cuba before uh, before the Cuban Revolution. Um, uh, and I think there's, you know, certainly the American government, Washington, uh, wanted Canada to participate uh, in the coup. Uh, the Bush administration has long history of hostility to people within the Bush administration long history of hostility to the Aristide government. But I think one of the, the, the sort of the overarching context is, is, is that Haiti is a very easily um, penetrated society. It's a very uh, uh, foreign-dominated society. And the Aristide government was seen as, as resisting uh, the, the complete implementation of the, of, the, uh, of the world order, of the neoliberal project. Um, and so the resistance from Haiti, which is such a weak um, uh, and poor place, was a, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a threat to the complete, uh, complete uh, domination of the, of the neoliberal order that, that Washington particularly, and Ottawa to a lesser extent, um, uh, is involved in implementing around the world. Um, so, so Haiti was really, it's a, it's a, the, the coup in Haiti was really an example to the rest of the region um, that uh, if you don't follow the orders, uh, we'll get you. Well, let's talk about what's happening in Haiti today. Is there an interest uh, and a movement to bring back Aristide? For sure, there's. Uh, I'd say. Uh, I mean, like I said, there was a big demonstration uh, 
on to mark the 50th anniversary of uh, multiple thousands of people. Uh, even the Associated Press is, is, has an, had an article after the demonstration saying that uh, Aristide is still the central uh, political um, uh, figure in the country. Um, so yeah, you have a you have a active movement calling for the return of uh, of Aristide, uh, the physical return. He can no longer participate in. He can no longer be president because uh, they have a two-year term limit uh, in the according to the Haitian Constitution. Um, uh, but but uh, but yes, yeah, so there, there's a there's definitely demand for the return of of Aristide. But one of the things that just took place is the electoral council, um, which was the electoral council set up by the coup government that was in office until May of 2006. Um, they banned uh, Famille Lavalas, Aristide's party, from participating in the in the upcoming elections in April. So all the candidates that Aristide's party had put forward uh, for senatorial uh, elections were were blocked from uh, their 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 names have been blocked from being uh, put on the ballot, um, which I think is just really another indication of first of all the the continuation of the of the coup d'état process, but also the fear that the the Haitian elite and and the foreign backers have of of Famille Lavalas, which is ultimately the the political party that's that's most uh, that the majority poor are, are most uh, closely identified with. Well, Eve Engler uh, of Montreal, thank you very much for sharing with us uh, your research on the coup in Haiti and your uh, forthcoming book, The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, is yeah. one that we'll be looking forward to reading. And where can we find your articles? Uh, is, well, Znet, uh, ZMag.org is a common place. So some stuff in Canadian Dimension. Um, uh, yeah, usually online, something rabble.ca, Dominion Paper. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Gillian McEachern of Toronto is with Forest Ethics. She is here today to talk to us a little bit about the mass demonstration that greeted Canadian Environmental Minister Jim Prentice as he arrived at the White House yesterday to meet with U.S. Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. The demonstration was over Canada's tar sands, the dirtiest oil on earth. We have Gillian here on the phone from her office in Toronto. Gillian, welcome to Alert Radio. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. And if you, can, if you can just talk to us a little bit about the greeting that our environmental minister, Jim Prentice, received uh, when, he's, when he was in Washington yesterday. What can you tell us about it? Sure. Well, what happened was that for several of the meetings that he had with Chu and others, uh, Senator John Kerry as well, in Washington, he was greeted by a variety of polar bears, and other protesters who were really trying to raise awareness in Washington about the environmental impacts of the tar sands and highlight the fact that the tar sands don't fit with President Obama's vision for moving to a clean energy economy. And so who is responsible, Gillian, for organizing the demonstration? It was a number of organizations. Forest Ethics was part of it, uh, was one of the organizations. Rainforest Action Network was involved, and several others. There was uh, another event going on at the same time called Power Shift, which is a major climate um, activist workshop and conference in Washington related to climate change and particularly the coal issue in the U.S. So 
Minister Prentice's visit followed on the heels of that massive um, accumulation of climate activists in Washington. So the tar sands was linked in as one of the key issues that the U.S. needs to address related to climate change. And so I know you mentioned uh, some of the people involved with organizing it. Who was actually there? What was the population like? Was it all walks of life? or? Yes, well, the overall, the PowerShift conference included 10,000 activists from across the U.S. And some of these activists um, greeted Minister Prentice. So it is a diverse group of people who are concerned about climate change in the U.S. and are willing to take action and show that this is something that they're worried about. And so are you saying there was 10,000 people in total or just American activists? 10,000 people in total. Wow. That's a good size. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure uh, the minister didn't expect such a greeting. Um, do you think the demonstration will have any effect, Jillian? Yeah, so I think what it did was clearly linked the tar sands as a major climate issue for the U.S. and something that the Obama administration will need to grapple with in terms of our joint discussion around clean energy. And so when we look at uh, Obama's administration, it seems to say that they're a little bit more serious about reducing fossil fuel use than our own Canadian government. Um, I believe they are investing up to six times more per person in clean energy than we are. Care to comment? Yes, that's, that's correct. What we've seen in the early days of the Obama administration is that they are serious about addressing global warming and reducing fossil fuel use. And our government is seriously lagging behind. Um, we currently don't have strong climate policy. We're not investing nearly enough in renewable energy. And what we really risk is our economy being left behind as the U.S. makes this massive trans- transformation in their energy system. Uh, and Canada is still left peddling our dirty fossil fuels to, you know, within a continent that is now moving to recognize that we need to get off fossil fuels altogether. So what w- this risks is actually leaving us behind as new economies, new industries develop in the U.S. Our government is failing to step up to the plate and make sure that we're part of that. And so most Canadians then, Jillian, who have taken the trouble to look into you know, the tar sands and the extraction know how harmful to the environment uh, it is. Now, there has been a call for a moratorium on new developments and some calls for stopping any production. Um, These calls have gone unnoticed by the industry and the government, unfortunately, and only the economic crisis has put some crimp on tar sands investment. Now, perhaps President Obama's promised tax on dirty oil will slow it down, If environmentalists feel so strongly about it, I guess the question I have here is why has there been no effort to block production by way of blockade or other form of civil disobedience? Well, I think so far what we've seen is a growing concern. More groups, more organizations in the U.S. and Canada are involved in tar sands issues and they're They've so far employed, 
you know, a certain diversity of tactics, everything from running a full-page ad in USA Today a couple of weeks ago, which is what Forest Ethics did, to um, Greenpeace, for instance, hung a banner over one of the tailings pipes in the tar sands last summer. And I think as the campaign progresses, you will see, you know, various tactics being employed and it could just be that there are different stages as we go through the campaign. And like any other uh, movement, it is it has to start somewhere. So what you're saying is this is just the beginning. Yeah, we the awareness has clearly increased in Canada over the last year. People now understand that the tar sands are a problem. And now the question is, Will our government do anything to address it, or are they going to continue in investing in fancy PR firms who will try to spin the tar sands as green and act as if they're taking action to clean it up when they're really not? Well, I guess time will tell, won't it? So we'll have to get you back uh, within a time frame and see where we're at uh, with the tar sands. So thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. And you have a good night. You too. Thank you. And that was Gillian McEckern of Forest Ethics in Toronto. You are listening to Music is the Weapon. I'm André Clément. Now, we've delved through a variety of genres over the last few months on this feature. We've listened to folk music troubadours, African rebel rousers, and modern-day anti-capitalist rock and rollers. But an era we've yet to cover in the world of politically charged music is the punk music scene coming out of the United Kingdom starting back in the mid-70s. With the exception of the Sex Pistols, the band known as The Clash were certainly at the forefront of this movement. And they are the featured artists today on Music is the Weapon. Here is a classic for you that has been dubbed by many publications as the most important song in punk music history. This is London Calling by The Clash. Quit 
credited with pioneering the advocacy of radical politics in punk rock. The Clash protested against the established monarchy and aristocracy in England and took it a step further by finding solidarity with a number of contemporary liberation movements and groups such as the Anti-Nazi League. The band's political sentiments were also reflected in their resistance to the music industry's usual profit motivations. Even at their peak, tickets to shows were always reasonably priced. These value-for-money principles meant that despite widespread success, they were constantly in debt to their record label, CBS, and only started to break even in the last few years of the band's existence. Now here's a second song from The Clash. From the album Give Em Enough Rope, this is Tommy Gunn.
The Clash's musical legacy is of note. Their influence can be heard in modern-day political punk bands such as Rancid or Anti-Flag. But ultimately, The Clash did go on to do much more than just play punk music. As such, their influence is perhaps even more resounding in the music of world-beat ensembles like Mano Negra and Todos Tu Muertos. I've also heard a great Arab interpretation of the hit song Rock the Caspa by the Algerian-born artist Rashid Taha. The last song we'll feature from The Clash today is taken from the band's 36-song epic album entitled Sandanista. The album was produced with the collaboration of iconic Jamaican reggae artist Mickey Dredd. This is the song The Magnificent Seven. For Music is the Weapon, I'm André Clément. Take your car out of that 
is our program for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank all the usual people, but first, Chris Alby, I'd like to wish you and all of our listeners a uh, happy International Women's Day. Thank you so much, and that is this Sunday, March 8th, so we encourage listeners to check out events in their community. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soon-Walla for the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Around the Left in Seven Days. André Clément for Music is the Weapon, technical producer Tommy Allen, and our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. For today's episode, you can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com.